Welcome again, everyone, to Impact. Um, I do just want to, like, really hit home one thing that Michelle said. When it comes to those eggs that you all are going to start bringing in, I'm begging you to not bring just eggs and just candy. Because when you do that, that means someone has to fill those, those eggs and those candy, and it's going to be Frank. That's what I'm going to make do it. So please don't bring in, please bring them in pre-filled, okay? And, and thank you. Anyways, okay, so um, we are in the last part of our, of our sermon series on the book of Revelation. Just so you know, next week we are starting something brand new that um, we're calling Investigation. And next week is going to be a completely different um, topic and feel completely different than it has been this past month on the book of Revelation. Next week, we're going to talk about here's why we believe what we believe. Here is why we think that what we believe is true. So it's going to be very, very, um, we're going to bring it back down to like some of the history of the, the gospel, specifically the, the gospel of Luke. And so this will be a great series. If you have friends or family you've been thinking about inviting to church, this will be a great series for that because we are going to be talking very specifically about here's why we believe that there was a guy named Jesus who actually died and three days later came back to life. We're going to talk about the evidence we have for that. So, um, and that's going to lead us all the way to Easter. So um, it's going to be completely different than the series we've been doing about the book of Revelation, which we're closing today. Um, the first time I can remember sharing my, my faith or sharing Jesus with somebody and leading them in a salvation prayer, um, I was in elementary school. First time I remember doing it. Um, growing up, my mom did daycare. And my mom did daycare. And so um, I would come home from school and there would always be, like, kids sleeping in our bed. We had to be quiet when we walked in. And, and I remember there's one kid, I can't remember the kid's name, but he would sleep in my bed, and he would peel, like, the wallpaper off my walls or, like, posters, and he'd pee in my bed all the time. So that's what I had to do with. And I had to come in and mom be like, hey, don't be, don't be loud. All the kids are sleeping. So we'd come in and do that. And in the summers, a lot of times, my mom would watch kids that are closer to my age because, and I'd be home because their parents would be working, so I'd, watch, I'd hang out with kids that were closer to my age. And the first time I remember, there was a kid who was around our age, and growing up in a Christian home, whenever I met a kid who did not go to church or um, did not really believe, I was always shocked. I was like, you, why? Why don't you go to, that's, that's, all, that's all I did. It's all I wanted to do. I loved being in church. I loved, all my friends were at church. I, my, my, my world was revolved around um, church and, and Christianity, and I loved it. So whenever I met a kid that didn't, I was like, what, what do you mean you don't go to church? You have to go to church. Yeah, it's something you have to do. So I met this kid. And I start grilling this kid about church, and I'm grilling about Jesus, and I learned that he does not know God, and he does not know Jesus. And in my head, I was like, you know what that means? If he doesn't know God and doesn't know Jesus, if you don't know God, then you're going to go to hell. And I don't want this kid to go to hell, so I started freaking out about it. So I started talking to this kid about Jesus, and I was not talking about, like, the grace that we have through Jesus Christ and forgiveness. That's not what I talked about. What I was talking about was, do you want to go to hell? Seriously. Do you want your dad to go to hell? You know what's in hell? That's what I was saying. I was like, I was like, there's bad things in hell. There's demons and fire and skeletons, and I'm sure clowns are there. Like, there's bad things. You don't want to go there. And I, and I laid it on to this kid so thick that he started crying. He was like, I don't want to go there. Like, do you want your dad to go there? And he's like, no. I was laying it on thick. So like, then you better pray this prayer right now or you're going to go there. And he said, okay. And he's holding my hand. And we, we pray this prayer. We pray this, the sinner's prayer. That was the very first time I ever uh, prayed with somebody about salvation was that kid. I used, what did I use there? I used fear and guilt to get them there. The book of Revelation I have found has been used for fear and guilt for a very long time. It has been used to scare people into accepting Christ. 
And it wasn't necessarily done maliciously. Maybe for some of us, it hasn't been done maliciously, but because of the way the book has been discussed, because of, of the way that we've interpreted the book, it's caused many of us to avoid the book of Revelation entirely and to think incorrectly about the book of Revelation and about God through the book of Revelation, or even abandon our faith altogether because of what we read about in the book of Revelation. Throughout this series, I've talked to many of you about the book of Revelation, about this series that we've been doing. And here's some of the things that I've, I've been learning. A lot of us have some baggage when it comes to this book. And here's some of the things that I've heard from some of you. I heard things like, I was so scared to be left behind at the rapture. I saw the movie Left Behind, and I was terrified that was going to happen to me. And, I was so, and so what I would do, and I remember doing this, I would pray the sinner's prayer all the time. Because I, didn't want to, I wasn't sure if it actually worked the first time, so I just kept praying it over and over. I prayed it. 10, 20, 100 times. I've heard some, some people said, yeah, I didn't actually think God loved me for a very long time. Because I just read the book of Revelation. I was like, I don't want to be left behind. I don't want him to send me to hell. So um, I just, I, I don't, I didn't think God actually really loved me. And I hope that throughout this series, if you've been, if you haven't been here, you can always go back and, and on our website and, and catch all the, the, the sermons and listen to the podcast. But I hope throughout this series that you've been able to see the beauty and the message of hope that we actually find in the book of Revelation. Because that's the point of the book. This letter is written by John in 95 AD. It is written to seven churches in the Asia Minor area. And these seven churches are going through the worst persecution that has, that has ever been and, and some of the worst persecution by Rome at the time. And this letter was written not to confuse them, not to scare them, but to remind them of the hope that we have through Christ. And that's when we read it, that's what we should get out of it. Not fear, not guilt, not how is it going to end. It's the hope that we have through Christ. At the end of the day, good wins. At the end of the day, all the pain and all the hurt and all the persecution that these people were going through, these churches, these seven churches were going through, was going to be worth it because they would be able to spend eternity with God. So today, to close out this series, we're going to look at the six last, the final six chapters of the entire book. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to that six. We're going to start in verse 17, or chapter 17. Here in the final six chapter, chapters, we're going to be exploring three different themes that are talking about the final coming of God's kingdom. That each one of these three things we're talking about are the same thing that's talked about in a different perspective. And I, want to, I need to give some review. I think I talked about this week one or week two. But I need to review the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth, what we see throughout Scripture. Because here's what we see. We see the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth. In Genesis 1, we see it's together. It is joint. It is perfection. Everything is together. There is no separation. But then what happens? Sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth are now split. All of a sudden, now it is not together because the kingdom of heaven is holiness. It is set apart. Sin and evil cannot be part of it. So when sin enters the world, it has to be separated. That's what we see in the very beginning. But then throughout the Old Testament, you will read that there will, there are the, there's the temple. And there's a holy of holies. And that is where the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth intersect. That is the intersecting part. That that is where we can be part of the kingdom of heaven when you read the Old Testament. And the way you would do that is you would go to the temple and you would have to give an animal sacrifice. You couldn't just go there because you're sinful people. You had to give a sacrifice to pay for your sins, to cleanse you, so that you can be in that holy space, the intersection between heaven and earth, the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth. But then Jesus comes into the picture. And Jesus says, not only am I the temple, but I'm also the lamb sacrifice that you have to give. And Jesus doesn't keep that, that intersection right there. He actually goes to the kingdom of earth and spreads 
and spreads the kingdom of heaven all throughout the kingdom of earth. That's what this scripture talks about. That's what the Bible is telling us, that the entire book is about the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of earth being merged back together. In chapter 17 through 20, 22, what we see is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth becoming one again. That's what we see. We see that what was, it was one, separated, then Jesus came and was intersected, and then at the end, it will again be one. But in order for that to happen, something has to be done about evil. Because evil cannot be in the holy of holies. It cannot be in the kingdom of heaven. It is the complete opposite of it. The chapter 17 and 18, we get this imagery, and we're not going to read it, but um, you can read it this week. We get this imagery of a beautiful woman who is drunk off the blood of martyrs and innocent people of God. And this woman is riding a dragon beast. And they call this woman the, the, the ba- uh, ba- Babylon the prostitute. If you read any of the Old Testament prophecies, um, especially the book of Jeremiah, uh, you will hear about idolatry. And idolatry was very often compared to adultery and prostitution. The idea is that the Israelites are being unfaithful to God, and because of that, they are, they are honoring other gods or other kingdoms. So the imagery we see here would make complete sense to the church that's reading it. It's, they wouldn't think of it as a literal thing. They would, it would make complete sense to them. It was a symbol of a rebellious nation, of rebellious people, of rebellious actions. It is a symbol of Rome. That's what they would understand it as. It's a symbol of Rome. Rome is the current archetype of humanity's rebellion against God, but it wouldn't be the last one. Because although John is symbolizing here Rome, and he's symbolizing this woman riding a dragon beast. If you've been here, this should be familiar territory, this, this, the dragon, the beast, those kind of things. Because even though he's symbolizing, he's symbolizing Rome here with this woman, at the same time, John is taking all these imageries of Babylon and Tyre and, and Edom found in the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel. But John here isn't talking about just these nations. John is talking about the human condition. That's what he's talking about. Because here's what we're learning. The human condition desires rebellion. What it desires. The human condition, our sinful nature, desires rebellion. They have done research on the urge to rebel, and it's, it's pretty fascinating. In, in psychology, there's something called the reactance theory. I don't know if you ever heard of the, the reactance theory, but it is an unpleasant feeling that emerges when people experience a threat of behaving freely. Here's the example. Let's say you're on a spaceship, and uh, there's a captain and the, space, and the captain says, hey, you can press any button you want. Press as many buttons you want. But there's this one big red button. Just don't press that one. Press any other button, but don't press that one big red button. You at least are going to want to touch that button, right? At, at least. You might resist the urge because the captain told you, but some of you would for sure right away, right when he's not looking, press that red button. That is the reactance theory. It's a psychological effort to gain control when we feel like we've lost control. Most likely, you have had a season of rebellion. Most likely, you've had a season, maybe for some of you, you're in that season right now, where you've rebelled against what, how you grew up, you rebelled against what you were taught, you rebelled against maybe you, the, the faith that you learned as a child or the faith that you had as an adult. For some of us, we've rebelled more than others, but we've all experienced at some point a season of rebellion. I remember... I tried to be a really good kid when I was a kid. Um, I was also afraid of getting in trouble. That was something I was always afraid of. So um, as a kid, I, I always made sure I didn't get in trouble. And so when I was in high school and, and college, I didn't do what most high school kids would do. I, I didn't really party a lot. That also was probably because I didn't get a 
invited to parties a lot, so it was a little easier for me to resist the temptation when no one's asking me to go. But I didn't do, I didn't do what most high schoolers did. In fact, I didn't, my first beer I ever had, um, I was a week before I turned 21. That's how long I waited, right? So I was trying to be a good kid. But then I turned 21, and I was legally allowed to drink. So in my head, I'm like, time to make up for lost time, okay? All these other people did it, I'm going to make up for lost time. So I would go to every party I could. I would drink as much as I could. Everyone I was around, our goal was to drink a lot. And that was a season where I was like, you know what? I, I did this for so long, it's time to rebel a little bit. And we, a lot of us have seasons like that where we, it's in us. It's, it's the sinful nature that we have. The human condition desires rebellion. It was my way of rebellion. It's a human condition. I mean, think of Adam and Eve. They can eat from any tree in the garden but one. It's kind of like a big red button. Just don't eat from that one tree. But that tree has to be there or there's no free will. If there's no tree, then you, there's no way you can sin. You, there has to be an option for something else. And so there's this one tree they cannot eat from. That's, that's so that they can have free will. Rebellion is the human condition. It's the sinful nature inside of us. But sin is rebellion against God. When we give in to that rebellion, that's sin. We all have this desire to rebel in us, the desire to press that red button we're told not to press. We're all born with that sin in us, that desire to rebel. But we are also all born in the image of God. That means that we, have the, that we are responsible beings, that we are expected to respond in faith and obedience to God. It also means you are able to respond in faith and obedience to God. That even though inside of us there's this rebellion that sometimes we want to give into, that we are also able to not give into that rebellion. Sin is the rebellion against God. Sin is personal and willful disobedience to our Creator. Isaiah 1-2 says, I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The human condition is rebellion. And when we give into rebellion, it's sin. So here in, in the book of Revelation, whether it's Rome, that's what he's talking about here, or Babylon or Edom, or us, our rebellion and our sin aligns us with evil and sin. While at the same time, when we do that, when we rebel, it aligns us up with evil and it is in complete opposition to a holy, loving God. Which leads us to chapters 19 and 20, which is the final battle. You may, if you grew up in a church home, you may recognize some of this stuff. Some of this is going to be weird and imagery, but stick with me. I'll try my best to explain as much as I can. There's this final battle that's told twice. It's told twice. Starting in verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 11. Here's what it says. It'll be on the screen as well. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horse and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name, this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Again, we're seeing some of the apocalyptic language we've seen throughout this entire series. But here's what we're seeing. We are seeing Jesus coming back on this white horse, and, he's, and it says he's covered in blood. But this blood is not other people's blood. It's his blood. We've already talked about he's the slain lamb. 
He's a slain lamb who dies for us. It's his blood. He willfully dies for us so that this isn't other people's blood. It's the slain lamb, the Messiah, and that's how he defeats evil. And his only weapon, it says, is a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. Now, this sounds interesting, but in, this comes directly from Isaiah 11, verse 4. Is what Isaiah says. With, with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will say, slay the wicked. So Jesus doesn't come and just create a bloodbath where he's covered in everyone's blood because he just created a bloodbath. Now, Jesus comes proclaiming justice. That's what Isaiah says. It's an imagery to Isaiah. So what does justice do? Justice holds people accountable for not repenting of their rebellious ways and for participating in the evil that is corrupting and destroying the world. That's what justice does. And when justice comes to a broken world, if we don't repent without repentance, the hell that we have created becomes our destiny. Chapters 20, verse 1 through 7, it says that the beast is held captive, and the followers of Jesus who have died for their faith are raised again, and they, and they reign with Jesus for a thousand years. This would be called the, the millennial kingdom. Okay, so we see that in verse 1 through 7, and that leads us to our second battle, and I'll do this one quick, starting in verse 7, uh, chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand of the seashore, on the seashore. What we see here, we see this beast is held captive uh, for a thousand years. He comes back out and he respires rebellion and rallies people to rebel against God's kingdom. But it says they don't win the battle, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. The death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you might be thinking, what is happening here at this point, right? I got it. Stick with, stick with me. Before God's throne, before his throne of justice, evil faces eternal defeat, spiritual evil. And everyone who doesn't want to be part of God's kingdom Everyone who chooses not to participate in the kingdom of God and chooses to participate in the kingdom of earth are destroyed, and they are given what they want. The dragon, Babylon, all who choose the side of evil are eternally quarantined so that they are unable to corrupt God's creation again. Now, there's two ways you can look at everything I just said. You can look at all this as literal. This is all literally going to happen. Everything we read is we're going to see that at some point. At some point, there's going to be a beast. There's going to be a thousand years of millennial kingdom, and the final judgment will happen exactly how it's written. You can see it that way. Or you can look at it as not literal, as symbolism. You can look at it as the thousand years that we talked about is a symbol of the present victory that these churches that are reading this are, are understand it as, they're experiencing it. And the two battles we just read are two different, um, depicts two, the Jesus future returning at two different angles. Either way, I'm not here to tell you whether you should think of it literally or not. You can do the homework yourself. You can look at that yourself. Either way, whether you depict it as literal or not, here's the point that we have to understand. Here's the point. Jesus will return as king to deal with evil 
and vindicate his followers. That's, whether you believe this is literal or not, this is the point. Jesus will return as king to deal with evil and vindicate his followers. He will return as a king reigning over his kingdom. Remember the beginning. It's his kingdom. It was joined together. The kingdom of heaven cannot merge with the kingdom of earth while evil is still in it. And if we are in it, we are evil because we sin. So we need to be vindicated from our evil, from the ways that we have participated in rebellion and sin. That is why Jesus comes with his blood on him. His blood is what vindicates us. It is what makes us blameless. It is why we can be in his presence. It's why we can be in his kingdom. That is why the last two chapters are all about this marriage of heaven and earth. Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. This, this sea here is in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish mind. The sea was a place of separation and evil, so it's their way of saying that there's no more of that. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse 4, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Here John is giving us this beautiful kaleidoscope of the promises that we see in the Old Testament. He talks about new heaven and new earth. That's from Isaiah 65. He talks about later on, he talks about a new Garden of Eden. That's Genesis 2. Um, he talks about a new Jerusalem. That's Isaiah 2. He's t- using all these things from the Old Testament prophets, and he's showing that everything's going to be made new. See, at the end, we don't escape into some clouds in the sky to be in heaven. That's how it likes to be depicted. That's not what the book of the Bible, that's not what Revelation or the Bible says. At the end, God brings his kingdom back here to earth. We don't escape heaven. Heaven comes here. God will not concede this earth that he created to the enemy. God will not concede earth to evil. God will not concede earth to sin. God will reign and rule over his creation as the king of kings, lord of lords. In the Old Testament, the kingdom of heaven, like we talked about, only intersected with the kingdom of earth at the temple. But here, in this new kingdom, here's what it says, uh, chapter 21, verse 22. I do not see a temple in this city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a temple. There's no need for a lamb. There's no need for sacrifice. The whole world has become the holy of holies. The whole earth has become his temple. And then at the end of this letter, he gives this amazing invitation that if we haven't read up to now, then a lot of us miss it. Here's the invitation he gives. Chapter 22, uh, these are the last two verses we'll look at. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, the beginning and the end. At the end of the day, what Paul tells us is there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is our reward. Our reward is his presence. Our reward is total satisfaction in him. Our reward is what all of our souls actually crave, to be united again with our Creator. I just want you to picture it. 
the end of your earthly life, you are in the presence of God. We are not judged as guilty, not because we aren't guilty. We are guilty. But we're not judged as guilty because the Lamb's sacrifice justifies us. And instead, we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enjoy your reward. I don't know about you, but I certainly don't feel like well done. I don't feel like that. I, I feel like I look at what the king modeled, and I'm constantly not living up to what he calls me to do. I don't necessarily feel like well done. I read Jesus' examples, I read the Gospels, and I try to measure myself, and I constantly don't measure up. In the first century, kings didn't just rule. Kings would embody the culture. However the king was, that's what the culture was. So um, if the king had a certain education, the whole nation had a certain education. If the nation was a, a, a warrior nation, it's because the king was a warrior. So the kingdom of God that we are invited to participate in, that, that he modeled for us, here's what the king does. That is a king who washed his disciples' feet. That is a king who ate with his enemies right before they all betrayed him. That's the king that we model ourselves after. That is a king who lifted up the poor and the vulnerable in a time period where the poor and vulnerable were considered, considered poor and vulnerable because they did something wrong, because of their sin. The, he would hang out with the lepers, and, and the, the lepers were lepers because somebody sinned, and it's a punishment from God, but we follow a king that hung out with those people. We, we see a king who fought for justice. We see a king who proclaimed the truth in love no matter what it cost him. And we see a king who died for his enemies and his subjects. Well done? I, I don't feel like well done. But when we are in Christ, there is no condemnation. It is well done with no sarcasm, with no eye roll, with no lecture, with no criticism. Well done. Here is your reward. That's the moment that we need to live for. See, here's what Revelation does. Revelation does two things. We're going to close with this. It reveals history's pattern and God's promise. Here's what history's pattern is. History's pattern, all human kingdoms elevate themselves over God's kingdom and must be resisted. That's history's pattern. All human kingdoms, whether it's a nation, whether it's the culture, whether it's our kingdom, all human kingdoms constantly try to elevate itself over the kingdom of God that we see through Jesus in the Gospels. All of it do that, and we need to resist that. We need to resist the temptation to give in to all human kingdoms, including the kingdom that we are making. And God's promise, Jesus will remove evil from this world and make all things new. All things new. That means you. You can be made new in Christ. You can be redeemed and justified and refined. You do not need to be a slave to sin or a slave to rebellion, but through Christ, you can be made new. You cannot be made new while you continue to elevate your kingdom over His. You need to surrender the kingdoms of this earth, including yours. So here's my final question. And then we're going we're gonna to close with a song. We're actually going to take communion together as well. Here's my final question. What do you need to lay down from your kingdom 
to surrender to his kingdom? What is it that you need to lay down that's part of your kingdom, that keeps elevating your kingdom above his? What do you need to lay down from your kingdom to surrender to his kingdom? I find that most of us are pretty aware what we need to lay down. Maybe for you it could be a sin that no one taught you is a sin, that you just know you shouldn't be doing it. And you don't want anyone to ever find out about it, and you just keep it to yourself because you're embarrassed about it, and you know you shouldn't be doing it, but you continually do it. And maybe for you, you need to lay that down. And the way you start is by getting out in the open, finding someone you trust, being vulnerable with somebody, say, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I need help with, and find someone that will be able to help you with that. You need to lay down something from your kingdom to surrender to his kingdom. Maybe for you, it's just the pride you have in life. Your need for acceptance, your need for possessions, your need for attention, your need for more and more and more, and just make it all about ourselves and make it about me. Maybe you need to lay that down. So you know what? I need to sacrifice. I need to fast. I need to give of my stuff. I need to do things intentionally to remind myself that it's not about me. Maybe for some of you, you just could be simply believing that you don't deserve the grace. I find that a lot. That people times will think, I just, I know how much I've messed up. I know how sinful I am. I know what I've done wrong. I don't really deserve that grace. And listen, there is no condemnation for you. Everything is made new. You don't deserve grace because that's what grace is. You don't deserve it. But you can get it freely through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So what do you need to lay down from your kingdom to surrender to his kingdom? kingdom that is reigning, the King of kings, Lord of lords. So what we're going to do in the worship team, you can start coming on up. To close out today, close out this series and to close out the service, we're going to take communion together. This is a way for us to remind ourselves of why we can participate in the kingdom of heaven. It's not because we're good enough, it's not because we can earn it, but because the lamb that was slain Jesus came and died for us. This is what we're, when we eat the bread and we, and we drink of the juice, it's us reminding ourselves of his body being broken, of his blood being poured out for our sins. So as the worship team plays, I'm going to invite you to go in the back, grab your elements and come take a seat. We're going to take it together. So wait for us and, and Pastor Michelle will lead us in our communion. But I do want to let you guys know just a couple things. You do not have to be an, an owner here at Impact Church. You do not have to consider this your church home in order to participate in communion. We just ask that you be uh, a participant of the kingdom of God in order to take communion. And if you aren't, but you want to be, this is an opportunity for you to do that. You don't have to consider this your church home in order to take communion. We have an open table here. But I want to encourage you and invite you when you grab your elements, so worship plays this closing song, to take a seat. And I want you to think about what is the thing that I need to lay down? We all have it. We all have something we need to lay down from our kingdom to surrender to his. So let's take our elements together. We can start from the top and go right down the middle. 